to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be the children of the Most High. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked." Be merciful, just as God is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I am the oldest child in my family, which I've always born with, I think, a special kind of grace. I took my responsibilities as the eldest very seriously, in particular, my duty to tell other people what to do. It was a heavy weight. I'm not going to lie. But if you ask my sister and brothers, I think they'll tell you that I bore up under that burden always ready to help other people direct their lives and activities. These responsibilities became especially apparent when I was asked to babysit, which was, just let me say, a lot. I told everybody what to eat, when to go to bed, and if my mom had suggested we take some of our free time to clean up the house, I knew immediately upon whom to call to get the job done. Unfortunately, my siblings weren't always as enthusiastic about my role as the lord of the manor and chief order giver. In fact, they were often downright resentful and resistant. 
I'd say, look, you, you guys need to make sure that the dishwasher gets cleaned out, which I think was a perfectly reasonable request. But I was almost always met with some level of unbelievable obstinance. But they would say, well, why don't you do it? Now, see, I thought I exercised great patience by repeating slowly, clearly my reasoning. And I'm, I, I don't know to this day why my siblings never quite seemed to remember the answer. But every time I found myself explaining, well, because I told you to do it. Apparently, this very simple exercise in logic was still beyond their moral and intellectual capacity because my sister and brothers would invariably respond by saying, so, you're not the boss of me. Now, I take it as a credit to my merciful and forbearing nature that all of my siblings survived their childhoods and are now semi-functional adults <clears throat> with jobs and families fully formed ability to unload a dishwasher all by themselves. I regularly await their gratitude in the form of a heartfelt thank you note. I mean, it doesn't have to be a full-blown letter. I'm not a monster. <clears throat> have you ever had that, uh, you're not the boss of me, you can't tell me what to do conversation with somebody before? I mean, what is that conversation really about, though, right? I mean, way deep down at the very heart of it, well, it's about power. Right? It's always about the pecking order, about who has the juice to make us do things. And when kids say, you're not the boss of me, what they're really getting at is a reading of the world that assesses where everybody fits in the playground pecking order, right? You can't make me do anything because you don't have sufficient power to compel me to do it. But my assertions of power tend to be about my own decision-making authority, don't they? I'll shut up if I want to. I'll wear tennis shoes to the prom if I feel like it. I'll empty the dishwasher when I'm good and ready. See, so many of us go through life believing, to one extent or another, in our ability to choose our actions despite opposition from other people, especially those with less power than we have. I'm, I'm stubborn. You can't make me do something I don't want to do. But while I'm quick to say that you can't tell me what to do, I have to be honest about the fact that I don't always live that way. What do I mean by that? Well, I often live as though somebody else is calling the shots, determining how I act. I'm just more clever in how I speak about it. I talk about somebody yanking my chain, right? Or pushing my buttons which is to say I, I sort of tacitly admit that there are people to whom I've given control of my actions. But I talk about it as though I had no power over what I do when somebody, you know, gets a rise out of me. I, I'm powerless to respond otherwise, right? I mean, you know what I mean. Why did you hit your brother? Well, he... he he called me four eyes. I mean, he knows I hate that. 
Why did you blow up at Elaine in the budget meeting? Well, she stole my parking place. I mean, I guess I was still a little irritated about it. Why did you think she was giving consent? Well, obviously, I mean, she was wearing that skirt and that, you know, blouse and couldn't really help myself. Why did you assume he had a gun? Well, I mean, he was a black man with his hand in his pocket. And I told him to show, him, show me his hands, I, but I didn't have a choice. See, Jesus knows. We let people tell us what to do all the time. I mean, that's what Jesus is concerned with in our passage this morning. Our, our, our penchant for sort of relinquishing control of our actions to other people. As if we have no real power or agency in our lives. But Jesus isn't having it. He says, yeah, we do have a choice. We don't have any buttons that can be pushed without our implicit consent. There's no chain that can be jerked unless we allow it. Jesus says, you don't have to hate your enemies. You don't have to curse those who curse you. You don't have to hit those who hit you. You don't have to refuse to give just because they don't strike you immediately as deserving of your help. You don't have to love only those who love you. You don't have to do good only to those who do good to you. You've got a choice. You're the boss of yourself when it comes to figuring out how to live in this world. Nobody can make you be someone you're not already prepared by your choices to be. Jesus says, don't let your enemies call the shots. Just because they hate you doesn't mean you have to hate them back. If you react to them, you give them power over you that you don't have to give them. If you reflexively react to violence with violence, then you allow somebody else to determine the range of your ethical response. And in responding to your enemies with hatred instead of love, you become less than God intended for you to be. See, you call the shots in your own life. Don't let somebody else call them for you by the way they treat you. Now, interestingly, Jesus doesn't just deal with negative examples. Jesus goes the extra mile by telling us not to love people simply because they love us, right? What? Why not? Because you don't let anyone determine your behavior for you by how they act. Nobody gets to decide whom you'll love and whom you won't by the way they behave toward you. Jesus' Jesus' whole point in this text is to say, you don't have to wait to see how somebody will treat you before you know how to treat them back. You treat everybody with love. Treat them as God's beloved children regardless of how they act toward you. Well, that's a hard word, I know. And it's easy to sort of say out loud in a setting like this, sort of high-blown rhetoric, right? Sure. Yeah, that's a good idea. It's, it's a lot harder, isn't it? David Foster Wallace in 2005 gave perhaps the finest commencement speech ever delivered at Kenyon College. 
at the graduation. It was called, This is Water. And in his speech, he, he, he sort of challenges what he calls our default settings, our, our reactions to the world around us. And he says that they are, those default settings, insufficient for true life and true knowledge. So he offers this really interesting thought experiment. He says, by way of example, let's say it's an average adult day and you get up in the morning, you go to your challenging white collar college graduate job and you work hard for eight or 10 hours and at the end of the day you're tired and you're somewhat stressed and all you wanna do is go home and have a good supper, maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early because of course, you have to get up the next day and do it all over again. But then you remember, no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job, and so now after work you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of the work day, traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should, and when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. And the store is hideously lit and infused with soul-killing Muzak or corporate pop, and it's pretty much the last place you want to be, but you can't just get in and out quickly. You have to wander over this huge, overlit store's confusing aisles to find stuff you want, and then you have to maneuver your junky cart through all the other tired, hurried people with carts, and eventually you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of the day rush. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating, but you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the cash register who's overworked at her job, uh, which is a daily tedium and meaninglessness sur that surpasses the imagination of any of us at a prestigious college. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front and you pay for your food and you get told, have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. And then you have your, you have to take your creepy, flimsy, plastic bags of groceries in your cart with the one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left, all the way through the crowded, bumpy, littery parking lot, and then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, if, if I choose to think this way in a store and on the freeway, fine. Lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It is my natural default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. And then he says, but most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, 
You can choose to look differently at this dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's just been up three straight nights holding the hand of a husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicle department who just helped your spouse yesterday resolve a traffic, uh, excuse me, a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. It just depends what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and you're operating on your own default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider the possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you really know how to pay attention, then you know that there are other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell-type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred on fire with the same force that made the stars, love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. But this, that's the point, isn't it? You get to choose how you view the world, to whom and what attention you'll give. Nobody's the boss of how you act, but you. No one can tell you what to do about the kind of love you offer to others. It's your choice. Jesus doesn't say, well, wait to see if you're judged before judging anybody else. Right? He says, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Jesus doesn't say, well, <clears throat> before you condemn anybody else, wait to see if somebody condemns you first. No, he says, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Jesus doesn't say, well, just hold back and see if they're going to forgive you first before you extend forgiveness to them. He says, forgive and you will be forgiven. The whole you're not the boss of me thing is always about power, but here's the thing. You don't have to give yours away to somebody else. You're not the boss of me. Maybe that isn't such an adolescent response after all. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.